Would you stand with us, please, as Anna comes this morning to read our scripture? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, these members do not all have the same functions. So in Christ, we, though many, have formed one body, and each member belongs to the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is the word of the Lord from Romans 12, 1 through 8. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning by taking you inside a meeting that I had about 20 months ago, uh, right as we were about a week into all of this COVID stuff. Uh, it was a meeting that I had with about 20 other pastors. We were sitting in a big circle, and we were all talking about what are we going to do next. It was right around that time when we started hearing word that as schools were closing down and and all these different rules and regulations were being encouraged from the federal level all the way down to the state and the city level that they were not going to have gatherings of more than 10 people. And so we all got together, this group of pastors, and we said, what are we going to do next? And, and all together we decided we're going to go back to our churches and we are essentially going to lock the doors for the foreseeable future. We're going to go to online only and, and we all just agreed we're going to help each other out here because this is new. We don't know anything about it. And though today we, we still don't know everything about all of this, we, we know more. We knew nothing. And so we thought we were just going to help each other out and all just kind of make this unified decision and, and go along with what was being, being asked of us and, and try to do so graciously. And so we closed the doors. We sent all of our employees home. And, and what we decided to do here at South Tulsa was we were going to basically go on a 10-day period that every Wednesday we would make a decision about the, the Sunday that was coming, not the very next one, but the following one. And for seven weeks, this church was closed. At least the, the physical structure of this church was closed. And we were online all the way from the end of March uh, through Memorial Day. And, and it was such a strange time in every possible way. Uh, I think our ministers would agree that we were working from home. We were, were putting in twice as much work 
just trying to, to put together services that we could show online and to keep our, our groups together, to keep up with people, uh, to listen and to learn. It was just a, a, a time that I hope we never have to experience again. But in the midst of it, we also were wrestling with the question, well, what is the church? How do we reckon with a completely new environment and structure and time when our building is irrelevant to us? And when we don't experience what we spend a lot of time every week planning for, our corporate times of worship. What is the church? And what does it mean for us to be the church in times like we were experiencing? It was interesting that right around the same time, we had a lot of families who were coming back to the United States who had been worshiping somewhere in a foreign context. And some of those were our missionary families. Some of those were international global Christians who ended up in, in Tulsa. And they would say, we were already wrestling with trying to adjust because it was the opposite for us. We were not used to worshiping in a building like this. We were not used to being in a corporate setting with hundreds of people. We were used to being in a house with less than a dozen people. And so we're trying to adjust and teach our families what it means to be the church in a building and in a place that has a campus like this. And, and for those families, it was, a, a, again, a complete role reversal. And, and it took time to be able to, to adjust and, and to wrestle with that question, what is the church? And what, what is it supposed to look like in a context that's different than what we've experienced for so long? Well, this morning as we talk about Romans 12, a lot of what this chapter is dealing with is what is the church, or more specifically, we might say, who is the church? And as we wrestle with who is the church, what is it supposed to look like? And, and how in the world are we supposed to do this thing together, no matter the circumstances, unified as one body in Christ, doing that which he has called and commissioned us to do faithfully? You know, another thing that happened during that period, and, and I hope you've been seeing the results of it now all these months, really the Lord sharpened our focus as church leadership. Because it's easy after a while to get so locked into your routine and so comfortable that you're focused on a lot of things and you forget about just that essential core question, what does it mean to be the church and why in the world are we here? In the process of all of that, the Lord has brought us back to some some core essential commitments that rise above the rest. And Romans 12 is a chapter that really helps that sharpened focus come into light for the church. There's another chapter that's similar to this, 1 Corinthians 12. And even in Ephesians 4, Paul, who wrote all of this under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, is talking about some very similar things using some very similar words. And again, wrestling with that question, what is the church? What does it mean for us to be the church? Well, essentially, what the church is, as, as Paul uses this language here, the body of Christ. The body of Christ, the church, is made up of disciples of Jesus Christ. From every walk of life and from every corner of the earth. That's what the church is. That's who the church is. Disciples of Jesus Christ from every walk of life, from every corner of the earth who together are unified with one sole purpose, to glorify God in the church and to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in every place that we're sent. Romans 12 begins in this discussion about the church with the charge that all true disciples lay down everything for the sake of Christ. 
Now, Romans 12, 1 and 2, let's just be honest. We, we could just preach on these two verses this morning, actually for several weeks. That These are packed verses. They are, are incredibly theologically pregnant, but also they, they have some strong application in them about what it means to live out our faith in the midst of any culture or any place that we find ourselves. But in the larger context of this, this chapter dealing with the body of Christ in the church, this morning we're just going to talk about these verses for a moment. But they, they are the starting place, the reminder that disciples, each and every one of us who are a part of the church, we've been called to lay down everything for the sake of Christ. And the language Paul's using here is, is language of sacrifice. It's a reminder of those days even in the Old Testament when God called His people to offer up many things to Him as sacrifices. Things like their first fruits, their grains, their livestock. Because Christ became the perfect and the final sacrifice to fulfill the Old Testament law, the law of Moses. Thankfully, we don't have to offer those kinds of sacrifices anymore. Instead, though, as new covenant Christians as the church, we're called to lay down as a sacrifice our very lives. Just as Christ modeled for us our bodies, our lives, as an act of worship, we become living sacrifices to God. That's the language that Paul's using. Laying down everything for the sake of Christ. And this is a reminder personally for me that when I gave my life to Christ, I gave Him my whole life, not just part of it. When I laid down my life, I said to the Lord, I am no longer my own. I've died to myself. I've been raised again with Christ as a new creation. Therefore, I'm not the same person that I used to be anymore. And if that is the case, if I have, have laid down my life as a living sacrifice, if I am a new creation in Christ, if the old has gone and the new has come, it ought to be evident to others. It ought to be clear in, in my words, in my attitudes and in my actions. Paul says as a new creation in Christ, the true disciple lays everything down, but also is, is transformed completely in a way that does not reflect the world's priorities and goals. But instead, through, through a renewed mind in Christ, the disciple, the transformed person, is aligned with God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. Laying everything down. That's what it means to be a disciple, to come into the body of Christ, to be an effective part of, of God's kingdom work in the church that began with the transforming of your own heart and renewing of your own mind when Christ saved you. This transformation that Christ brings not only brings renewal to the individual, but but it also then becomes evident in the entire community of faith. But even still, before Paul gets into this language of the body of Christ, he reminds the church, he warns the church, that pride will destroy both the unity and the effectiveness of the church. That there is no greater threat to the unity and effectiveness of the church than the sin of pride among believers. If there is any way that that the church is actually going to be rendered ineffective 
and find that, that, that all that it's been called and commissioned to do, it's not doing. It's, it's going to start from the inside, the fracturing that happens when we no longer live in right relationship to each other. And if we're not living in right relationship to each other, it probably means we're also not living in right relationship to God. And, and all of that is probably rooted in the sin of pride. And so Paul gives them this warning to be careful, to watch closely the way they think of themselves. To remember that, that every, everything we have in the church, every relationship we have with each other that's rooted in our relationship with God, it's all a gift of God's grace. And because of His grace, the reminder is don't think of yourself more highly than you should, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. One of the ways that that, that, that phrase sober judgment can be translated, and I love this by the way, take a sane view of yourself. A sane view. Have the, the awareness, for, first of all, the spiritual awareness, but spiritual awareness also I think relates sometimes to social awareness which some people have more social awareness than others, have the spiritual awareness to realize that everything you've been given, every gift that you have comes from, from God Himself as the sole author and creator of every gift. And because of that, you and I are completely dependent upon Him for everything that we are and for everything that we have to give. And so rather than becoming prideful or seeing that, that our gifts in some way make us great, the reminder is to think of ourselves not more highly than we should, but with sober judgment, taking a sane view of ourselves so that we will stay grounded in humility in Christ and that our pride will not get in the way of the effectiveness that the Lord desires for us to have as believers and corporately as the church to do the kingdom work that He's called us to do. He, he uses this language here, not just with the negative word of instruction, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but also with that positive command, have emotional and social maturity that spiritual awareness to take a sane view, a sober view and judgment of yourselves. Or maybe we could say it this way, that as the Holy Spirit produces in us that fruit of humility, we use divine measurement when we look at ourselves and when we look at others. And when we think about our gifts or what it is that God has given us that we have to offer in service for His kingdom, we use divine measurement and we value these things as God values them and as God values each and every one of us. You might say it this way. Don't overestimate or underestimate yourself. But realize that in service of the church, every single one of us have something to offer. We have something to give. But when we start to elevate the gifts over the giver, that is pride. And pride will destroy both the unity and the effectiveness of the church. Because we remember, so we continue on in the text, the church is the body of Christ. And as the body of Christ, each of us belong to Christ, but we also belong to one another. This first idea 
each member of the body belongs to Christ. Paul's using the language here. There is one body, but the body has different functions. And, and in the body of Christ, by the way, only Christ is the head. So when, when Paul uses this language in Colossians, a couple of different places, he reminds us Christ, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything, He has the supremacy. He also talks about others who, who get disconnected from the call and the commission of the church, who break off from the body, who often through that sin of pride make it all about themselves and not about the kingdom and not about others. He says they've lost connection with the head. That's the problem. From whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Christ is the head of the church. He's the head of the body. And each member of the body of the church belongs to Him. Anything or anyone else claiming to be the head of the church is an imposter. And if at any point any church places anyone or anything else above Christ, then that church ceases to truly be the church. Because in the church only Christ is the head. He is the head of the body. And each member of the body belongs to Christ. But also Paul, using this language of, of unity, reminds us that each member of the body belongs to one another. And in a, a divided culture and a divided nation like we live in right now, probably as divided as it's ever been before, where people, even people who love each other, are divided against each other. The world desperately needs a united church. This culture desperately needs a united church. And we must remember that the church as the body of Christ is, is definitely rooted in Christ as the head. We belong to Him. But we also belong to each other. And in 1 Corinthians 12, where, where Paul, again, uses very similar words, he goes even further. He says the body is, is not made up of one part, but many. So that the foot cannot say, well, because I'm not a hand, I'm not as important. I don't play as, a, as essential a role in the body as, as the hand does. Nor can the eye say to the hand, I don't need you. But instead, God has placed all the parts in the body every single one of them, just as He wanted them to be. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you, he writes, are the body of Christ, and each and every one of you is a part of it. We suffer with each other. We rejoice with each other. We are interconnected and we are interdependent with one another. We are the body of Christ. This is not a competition. This is not a place where we ought to fall into the comparison trap that steals our joy and ruins our relationships. But it's a place where even though, yes, we do have a building and we have a structure, we remember that all of this is not essential. This is temporary. That these relationships that the Lord has given us, they will last forever. This isn't just a time, a season where, 
we spend life, we do life together, and at some point we'll be disconnected. That may happen on earth, but it will not happen in eternity. We belong to Christ. We belong to each other. And as he's bought his body, these relationships will last forever. And if one part of us is weak, if one part of us struggles, if one part of us is neglected, or one part of us is unwelcome, it will render our effectiveness useless. I had a, an interesting experience a few months ago that many of you have had, but I'd never had before. For the first time in my life, I had back problems. I'm over 40 now, it's clear. I'd never had back problems, and for several weeks, I was just having this strange issue in my back, and it's amazing how just that one little spot in my spine threw everything else out of whack for me. It, it completely changed the way I had to do everything for those weeks while my back struggled. This little spot in between a couple of vertebrae was out of alignment, and, and everything about my life had to change and had to be altered. Just one part not functioning correctly completely affected the rest of the body. That's the example that Paul uses. It's true even with a ligament. It's true even with the pinky toe. Every part of the body matters. And there's a beautiful truth about this. That the body of Christ is not reduced to a bland uniformity. But because the, we're not just made up of one part, but of many, there is a wonderfully diverse aspect to this body of Christ, the church. Wherein people and in our characteristics, we are not all alike. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a picture like a, a mosaic. Where each and every one of us is a little bit different. And each and every one of us have individual value. And God loves us personally in that way. But together, together we make an even more beautiful picture. Not just like the one on the screen, but even just look at our windows here in the worship center around us. Each and every one of them is put together as a mosaic that, that just one scalp or one shape by itself is beautiful, but, but together they paint a picture, they tell a story. And in particular, each and every one of our mosaic windows points to Christ. That's what it means to be the body. We are more effective together. We are interconnected. We are interdependent. And the story that our lives are supposed to tell when they come together is his story. We are the body of Christ. But sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we fall into that cultural trap, which is also a trap of human nature. And we forget that it's not all about me. And we think to ourselves, what, what can the church do for me? Not what is my role that I've been called to play in Christ's body for the good of his kingdom. I love this quote from two authors writing together. Alan Bosak, who's a South African Christian, and then Curtis D. Young, who's from the States. They wrote, if we're not careful, we might think of the church more like a health club than the body of Christ. As long as the church provides the services I want, I'll stick around. But when I'm no longer happy as a consumer, I'm out the door, saying things like, I'm no longer being fed. This is not biblical Christianity, they say. Scripture is clear that when we become Christians, we become permanently and spiritually a part of the church. We become part of the family of God, 
with all the responsibilities and expectations. We don't choose who else is a Christian with us, but we are committed to them because we are bound to them by the Spirit. The church is the body of Christ. Each of us belong to Christ, and each of us belong to each other. So rather than asking the question, what can the church do for me? Since you are the church, if you are a follower of Jesus. The better question should be, how has Christ called and equipped me to do his kingdom work as part of his body, the church? Each member of the body belongs to Christ and to one another. And each member in the body is gifted by God in multiple ways. Maybe that's something that that each of us need to hear, in, but perhaps in a different way. Maybe you need to hear this because you, you forget that you've been gifted by God. Or maybe you've fallen into that trap of comparing your gifts to others, and you've decided others are more gifted than you, and so you're still at a position where you're and you are not giving your all, your best, for service in the church for the kingdom of God. Or maybe you have elevated your gifts a little too much, and you see yourself as a little bit too important and too essential, and you've forgotten the fact that other people are gifted, and other people are called to serve. And maybe for you, it's not that you're to stop serving, but maybe you need to be more intentional about developing some other people and investing in them, and even at times figuring out ways to step aside so that other people might be able to step in and use their gifts too. I tried to learn this a lot in especially in my early days of ministry when I had the tendency to just take everything on myself and if somebody else wasn't carrying their weight, I'd just do their job for them. And the Lord kind of reminded me of what some of us have called before the hit by the bus principle, you know that one? If I, if I get step out in front of a bus and all of a sudden I'm not able to do the work that I was doing and everything I was doing falls apart, that's not good. It's not healthy leadership. I haven't been developing people the way that I should. Each member in the body of Christ is gifted by God in multiple ways. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. And for each of us, there is something to offer, something to do. We're not automatons, robots, or drab duplicates of one another. Instead, each of us are gifted and equipped in different ways. And we have the capacity to be used by God for His glory, even in areas where our natural gifting might not be present. But God places us and He calls us and He equips us to do the work for His kingdom. And because it's for Him and not for us, He will give us what we need when we need it. All of this, Paul says, is from the grace of God. And everything we have to offer is a gift from God. And it takes every one of us, all of us, as a part of this beautiful mosaic, this picture telling the story of Christ to bring our gifts together and to see the myriad of ways that God can use them. Sometimes when we read passages like this, it might feel like Paul and, and other apostles are just writing to those who are considered leaders in the church. And the leaders are certainly included, but this is written to everyone. This is written to every person in the church that everyone has a role to play. My favorite non-biblical or 
preacher of all time or preacher who didn't grow up during the times of, of Scripture. John Christensen said it this way. Every spiritual gift and act is a work of ministry. Every single one. So we might think that those who have the title minister are the ones doing the ministry, but no, every single act, gift that we offer, every single one of them is an act of ministry. And so today, ask that question, seek it out, search the heart of God. What gifts and abilities has God given you? What talents do you have? What skills have you acquired that can be useful for service in His body, in the church, for the good of His kingdom? Again, it's sort of, I think, part of our, our cultural, American cultural understanding and thinking, but, but this is also probably part of human nature as well. We tend to overvalue the people up front and to, to undervalue the people behind the scenes. And that was true in the first century too. That's what Paul is saying. And he, he really goes into detail about this in 1 Corinthians 12, that in some ways, the parts that are not seen are more honorable. Sometimes those that are on full display, they are less honorable they have a little bit less to offer when all is said and done. And those behind the scenes, those that are covered up, that aren't always seen, those are the ones that God may be using even more for the glory of His kingdom. I thought of just a silly example of this. For those of you who are active in Bible study groups here in Sunday school, you probably know the names of all of the, those who teach your Sunday school class. But do you know the names of those who set the room up for you and clean it after you're gone? Everyone has something to offer. Every gift, every act is a work of ministry. And Paul says even sometimes those that are behind the scenes, those that are hidden are more honorable than those that are on full display. So when we feel that temptation to become prideful in our gifts or to put our trust in the gifts instead of the giver or to neglect or demean those gifts that we might not notice or or always value as important we must remember the purpose of the gifts that god has given us each gift given is to be given back for his glory and this is where this this passage comes to a close and yes paul's listing out now some specific gifts and again in first corinthians 12 he goes into more detail so i've, I've mentioned that chapter enough that i hope you'll go read it today and put these two together because they they really do paint a beautiful complete picture of gifts in the church and what the body of Christ looks like but the reminder in all of this is that each gift that that God has given to us is a gift and it's also a gift that's to be given back for his glory and not our own the goal of our gifts the goal of our service is not to call more attention to ourselves or to have our names written on the wall or etched in stone or that we would be remembered forever. But every gift we've been given is given back in service to Him for His glory that His name would be known. That His name would be remembered forever. And in this section, Paul lists seven specific gifts. Again, he mentions many others in 1 Corinthians 12. He mentions prophesying, which is essentially discerning truth and then proclaiming truth. There are men and women in the church that God has given the gift to be able to say, thus says the Lord. Because they read, they interpret, they understand, and they proclaim the truth that God reveals. 
There are also those who serve, who, who meet the needs inside the church and outside the church through helping, providing, or completing tasks. There are those who are the teachers, who impart biblical interpretation and understanding. And, and think about in the ancient world where so many people in the days of the early church couldn't even read. They certainly didn't have all the books of the Bible yet. So, so the roles of the teachers were so important. And the New Testament has a lot to say about that. Then there are also those who encourage, who exhort, those who galvanize believers to put that biblical understanding into practice. We always need those guys and gals with all the energy and the zeal, like Shiloh this morning, right? We need those encouragers, those galvanizers to say, okay, now take what you know, take what God has shown you, and do something with it. Let's go together as part of the church. Then there's also the gift of giving, the generous sharing of resources, whether it's money or, or things or time. And then there's leading. Some who are gifted to take charge, responsibility for persons, areas or projects. And I give you again that subtle reminder, if you're that take charge person, you also have the call to make disciples and to develop others as leaders alongside you and behind you. And then he says, if your gift is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. There are those who just are gifted with demonstrating compassion in a personal way that goes beyond just the giving of resources. And, and all of these gifts are, are not listed as if to be put on your personal resume so that you would say again, oh well, so look at me. Here's what I'm good at. Here's what I do. But all of them come together with this picture that they are spiritual gifts given to believers for service to the church above any other personal endeavor. So wherever you might fall on this list, whatever your gifts might be, maybe you're in multiple categories. The final reminder here is, each spiritual gift is given to us by God and it's to be given back for His glory. It's not for you. It's for the service of His kingdom. It's not about you. But it's about Him and it's about His glory. And God has given gifts to each and every one of us. And here's another mysterious part of that. Even those gifts that we don't necessarily have with us all the time, there will come times when we need them, and because they're spiritual gifts, the Spirit will provide them. You may not be the teacher, but you might find yourself in a place where you're the only one, you're the only option, and you have to teach. Because these gifts come from God and the Spirit, you can do it. You may not naturally always be the most compassionate. But because these gifts come from the Spirit, you can do it. And you can do it cheerfully and lovingly. For the glory of God. For the service of His church. For the purposes of His kingdom. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me. I know that this message has really been for the believers, the church, for disciples. But I want you to just listen to this that I'm going to read to you for a moment. And I want you to hear this again with the, the understanding the gifts are, are meant to be used. They're meant to be put into practice. These are the words of an ancient Christian named Teresa of Avila. And these words are, are a beautiful way for us to close this morning. Christ has no body now but yours.
No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which He looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which He walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which He blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes, you are His body. Christ has no, Christ has no body now on earth but yours.